Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Hello and welcome to Headliner Radio, where we're delighted to be joined by Martin Fry, songwriter and lead singer of the legendary ABC, who's here today to have a chat about the release of their new live album, Lexicon of Love Live, a live recording of their breakthrough album captured last year in Sheffield to mark the album's 40th anniversary. Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, how are you and whereabouts are you joining very us? Very well. Cheers, Dan. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in uh, Barbados today. Oh, very I'm, nice. uh, by Gibbs Beach. Yeah. So I'm going to go for a swim in the sea yeah. shortly after this interview. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, what on earth are you doing on here? Chatting to me. Nice. Well, good. Um, Life is a beach. Yeah. <laughs> lots of beach. Oh, well, lovely. Good for the vocal cords. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for Salt water. Uh, <laughs> thank you for taking time out of your uh, out of your day to um That's cool. do this. Um it's a pleasure. Now, Lexicon of Love Live, uh, which is released, I should say, on May the nineteenth. Um, that was a that was a huge night for you. You know, fortieth anniversary, hometown gig in Sheffield. What are your recollections of of that night? Now, we were plotting. We were thinking about recording uh, a live album. You know, live albums aren't very in vogue now, but I grew up on them. It's how I got to know the Rolling Stones and the Who and David Bowie. You know, with Get your yah-yahs out by the Stones, live at Leeds by the Who, and um, David live in Philadelphia, yeah. yeah. It was always a great way of getting all the songs in one place. I mean, I'm waiting for Harry Styles and uh, Taylor Swift to do their live albums. I yeah. think it's come back in vogue. But um, about 10 years ago, we, we started playing uh, orchestral versions of um, some of our songs, some of the ABC songs. And um, with the South Bank Symphony with Anne Dudley conducting, and it kind of worked out really well. So we've been perfecting that show on and off for like the last few years. And I figured it would be great to kind of document it, uh, you know, in all its glory. Somebody said it's, uh, you're playing Sheffield 40 years to the day the Lexicon and Love, our first album came out. And I figured, yeah, it was our destiny to record that night. Uh, we played Manchester the night before the Bridgewater Hall. We played the Albert Hall in London the night after, but it felt right to go to Sheffield and record that night. Because uh, it's always a very emotional thing to go back to the city where it all started. And uh, it's all, it, it always is a great feeling playing Sheffield anyway. But to record it meant made a lot of sense there. So, yeah. And I didn't really want to record 12 shows and edit it all together and, you know, auto-tune every last hand clap. No, it's just yeah. a show. There it is in all its glory. And um, fortunately, it was a great show that night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, how, how did it feel performing that show? Did it feel, I know, because obviously, as you mentioned there, you did, you know, several other shows as well, but was there something a little bit magic, you know, that yeah. night? Yeah. I mean, for a lot of different reasons. I saw the Ramones, I think, and Blondie at the Sheffield City Hall. You know, I used to go and, when I was a student in Sheffield, I used to kind of drink in a bar opposite and a guy would bring in any extra tickets. So I went and saw Hall and Oates play there one night, you know, with a free ticket because I, I was an impoverished bohemian student, you know, had no money. So to be standing there on stage is always a buzz. But Sheffield, I mean, when you form a band and you first start out, you've got to kind of wander around every pub in town telling everybody, most of the other musicians, that you're going to be the best thing ever. You know, your band is going to kind of come along. Your songs are going to blow everybody's minds. It's kind of wish-fulfilling prophecy you have to have as you get drunk sitting in a pub. And there was a lot of that went on in Sheffield. So that's where Poison Arrow and The Look of Love and All of My Heart, Date Stamp, all those songs were conceived, you know, yeah. sitting on top of the 97 bus, riding home after a night out clubbing, you know. 
yeah. telling the world that ABC were going to be something special. So it kind of always meant that we had to push that little bit harder when we were trying to get a recording contract and, you know, when we were making those records back then. So to bring it back home all those years later felt great. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. I mean, what is it about that record that, that you think still resonates so so kind of significantly with people today? Because it is one of those albums that that is, you know, rightly kind of cited as one of the classics of that era. Um mm. And yeah, yeah I, I I sort of wonder what your um, if you've reflected on that at all, whether it's something that you prefer not to to dwell on or think about too much. I've thought about it in recent years because people, I mean, forty years has gone by. People still love the lexicon of love. They love a lot of that music uh, and that body of songs and album. I mean, I love. I've got my classic albums. They're like for your pleasure, Roxy music, Ziggy Stardust, you know, Sly Stone. There's a right going on, and. Yeah. I go back to that music and I listen to it every couple of years and it sounds, it has a life of its own. So I understand, I love the idea of a classic album, but um, I just guess on the one hand, there was some great timing from us. We were lucky because there was so many great, so much great music being made back in the early eighties. You know, you turn a corner and there's Scritti Politti with their album or Tears for Fears or Dexes or Human League or Duran Duran, you know, Eurythmics. There were so many great, pieces of work out there but um i think a lot of people have had broken hearts as well there's a lot of universal themes in that record and uh, everybody's had a bit of an emotional kick in the teeth so i think that's another reason and musically it's kind of i don't know it's it's not it, in a weird kind of way it doesn't sound dated i don't know why that is i have to stand on stage and perform so you kind of read the audience and you think they're going to get bored soon, you know, but no, they kind of flow with it. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. But if you're going to ask me why that is, I've no idea. And as soon as you finish a piece of music, it becomes public property. You know what I mean? I've got nothing to do with it. I'm just the curator. Yeah. Yeah, of course. No, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, can you, can you talk us through the, the, the sort of journey up to the point of releasing that record, you know, when, what, what were the origins of Lexicon of Love? How, you know, when did you first start working on the songs that would eventually form uh, the body of work? And how I lived did on they a, come together? Yeah. I lived on a place, what was liberating for us, I moved to a place called Barber Crescent. It was like a disco John let me have a house, a room in his house. And it was a derelict house. So you could, the band were able to rehearse in the house. There were no neighbours. Uh, it was like a sort of derelict street. And that was that meant we could rehearse every day. We didn't have to kind of just rehearse on a Sunday. So we set about writing stuff. Um, and then we'd play shows at Leeds Warehouse or uh, the Arc, Sheffield Art College or go to Ma- as far as Manchester from Sheffield. You know, we had a sort of circuit of places we'd play. And record companies got interested in signing us, signed a deal. We had a hit with a, a song called Tears Not Enough. And then we heard a song on the radio called uh, By Dollar, Handheld in Black and White, that Trevor Horner, this guy Trevor Horner produced. And it sounded like a sort of, it sounded like sort of a bit like Simon and Garfunkel meets Kraftwerk. It was this duo, these two voices on top. It was an incredibly ambitious record. And it, we were an incredibly ambitious band. So we we contacted Trevor and uh, started recording the bulk of Lexicon of Love over at Sound East Studios underneath a, a salubrious wig shop on Brick Lane, right at the end of Brick Lane. And round the corner was the Whitechapel Gallery. So I used to go there for a cup of coffee. 
uh, and that was pretty much the sort of build-up. We'd had a hit record. It got to number 19, but we felt we wanted to go further. And, I mean, number 19 was a great kind of a big hit. It was a top 20 hit. We were just a young band, you know, signing on the doll. Yeah. Uh, you know, we went on top of the pops alongside all those established acts. There was a big – back then, there was only a there was only a couple of indie sort of bands made it through into the mainstream, basically. It was very different to now. Yeah. So, I don't know. Does that answer your question? I don't know. Yeah, no. It, I'm not it, happening. It does. But it was kind of – I think we pushed Trevor and he pushed us and Anne Dudley was there. She, she came in and played some piano and then said she would arrange some songs. It was the, it was a first for everybody. It was the first, it was the first album Trevor had produced. Yeah. He produced tracks for people, but he hadn't produced an album or something before. Yeah. Apart from his own stuff, he said. So yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was an exciting time. It's kind of cool when you don't really, you're not really, you're fearless because you don't really know you're going to make a mistake. When you make your first album, you just go with the flow. You know, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing in a way. It kind of uh, makes people cautious. Well, then we were going to take on the world and that was that. You know, we wanted to make a record as good as Ziggy Stardust, as good as Roxy Music for your pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know, I mean, I've, you know, I don't think anyone can know at the time of writing a record that it's, you know, 40 years time, you're still going to be playing it and getting the kind of plaudits that it receives. But did you did you feel at the time that you were onto something special even relative to where you were at that point did you feel like actually this is a, a batch of songs that could really kind of plant our flag in the sand as it were or was it one of those things where it just kind of the the success of the record almost took you by not surprise no, perhaps but we wanted to plant our flag it was the yeah. world of it was welcome to the world of abc you know either you like yeah. it or you loathe it you know what i mean we and then the way we presented it was like nah i've got a sparkling tuxedo on here you know people <laughs> yeah. either loved that or they hated it and it was kind of Everything we did was like that, with the, from the record sleeves through to the gigs, through to the whole, the way it was set up. Yeah, the way it was recorded. Was it? Is it too schmaltzy to put strings on a record? No, we wanted to do that because we were ABC. You know, we we were kind of making dance music for the future. You know, so, so it's a very arrogant, pompous way of looking at it, but it serves you well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. It is. Did you? But, nah, we we. That's how it, that's how Trevor approached it. And Nan and Gary Langan and everybody else working on the record. Yeah. Yeah. We had something to prove, I think all of us. Yeah. I I was going to come on to that. Actually, the the production of the record, obviously Trevor Horn producing, and you talk about stuff like the, you know, the aesthetic of the band and wanting to like plant that, that flag in the sand. Presumably that was something that you bought to the sonic quality of the record as well, because it sounds like an oh, yeah. incredibly polished album for it, for a debut as particularly it's, it sounds like a super slick, shiny. Uh, it doesn't know, but I mean, a lot about, a lot of, that's how you made music back then. Although yeah. technologically things, new things had happened every week on a Wednesday, there'd be a synth out, you know, Roland would develop something. And then on a Friday, something else would arrive, you know, there were cues around those music stores, people wanting to be at the cutting edge. Trevor had got a fair light, um, a Fairlight 1, I think it was. I can't remember. Or Fairlight 2. Fairlight 1. So he could sample sounds and we could play them back onto the track. So, uh, yeah, um, there was a le- from Blackburn, there was the lexicon echo um, unit, uh, which meant you could kind of, uh, uh, was it ALS? N- new bits of kit would arrive every week into the studio. So, a lot of the polish comes from that sort of ambience, you know, the echo effects and stuff like that. Yeah. 
yeah. Uh, we didn't really have, we used some, by the time we did all of my art, we'd had a couple of hit records. So the record company agreed to let us do record some strings. On the look of love, there's some strings, a bit of pizzicato. <clears throat> but on the other step, there's the Selena string machine, which she, you know, it's uh, back, back then. You'd make it sound more sophisticated than it actually was. Yeah, very polished sound. Yeah. But then again, if you listen to those Kraftwerk records, they sound really sophisticated. And yet they probably didn't even have MIDI or ways of sequencing up synthesizers that we've got now or, yeah. you know, different Pro Tools effects and stuff. But yeah. people would make very, I mean, all the Steely Down records were made in the sort of 70s, very polished. Uh, it's just how you approach it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how long did it take? for the success of that album to filter through to you, you know, to, to kind of realize between mm. releasing it and then kind of realizing, wow, we've got a, a, a huge hit on our hands with this album. Was it something well, that developed over time or was it an almost uh, overnight? I always remember Avalon yeah. was number one. And I love Roxy music, but our yeah. record went to number one the following week. So yeah, it was, it was kind of, it arrived with a bank. Yeah. That felt good. Yeah. Of course your life doesn't change though. You just still, I wasn't still signing on the door, but I was still like on, you know, 50 quid a week. <laughs> Podiums <laughs> and uh, kind of wandering around the world, <laughs> trying to trying to work that out and be famous. Yeah. So, but yeah. yeah, the music took off pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. I was curious as well to talk a little bit about your influences at the time. So I know there are those, you know, the bands that you've spoken about. You know, David Bowie, Roxy Music, trying mm. around those bands that were around. But I know that yeah. in in previous, uh, you know, interviews and things like that, you've spoken about you know uh the sex pistols and joy division and the cure and that the kind of punk and post-punk world as well that you seem to be quite oh, yeah quite heavily immersed in and i was wondering it, how much of that in some way might have kind of worked its way into your process you know was that in any way an influence you or was that something that you liked but almost wanted to react against in some way because you know on the surface you listen to an album like lexicon of love which yeah you says you know maybe it was different at the time but it does feel like a very polished and slick record whereas those were obviously a bit a bit more kind of lo-fi mm. what have you i wondered uh, it seemed like sort of not an expected uh bunch of that you know a, a world rather for you to be so immersive i just wondered, wondered if you could talk about that a little bit well one of our biggest influence i mean uh i grew up the Subway sect and Susie and the Manchies and the Pistols and the Clash. Yeah, I used to go and see them. I used to go and hitchhike to go and see them, jam, yeah. all those bands. But I was much younger, so there was a feeling amongst – we wanted to make dance music, stuff that people would dance to. We wanted it to be really positive and uplifting. We were disappointed the Clash were never on top of the pops, you know. So our generation was kind of looking ahead, thinking – I mean, I was one of the bigger – Biggest influences on us was definitely Motown, Tamla Motown, Holland Dozy Holland, the way they used to write those incredible hit records. Just my imagination by the Temptations or the Four Tops or Stevie Wonder, Smokey Robinson, Supremes. Those records are like mini operas. They kind of come out the blocks and they kind of peak. They were great, you know, and then influenced by the music we'd hear in, on the dance floor, yeah. I mean, you know, those early Michael Jackson records, uh, sorry, his early solo stuff with Quincy Jones. Yeah, incredible. So there was a lot of people doing very polished stuff. Our, what we wanted to do was to kind of take on the world and compete internationally. Yeah. Very much so. But yeah, I love like Thomas Lear and Perubu and, um, you know, all that experimental. We, we came out 
our band vice versa developed into abc so we were really into the synths and the electronic stuff yeah yeah uh, there's stuff like private plane uh, one record we really loved was grace jones pull up to the bumper and her early records so much so that we were, approached alex sackin who produced grace jones made some incredible records which were like kind of dance floor classics in sheffield and manchester yeah um, I remember going to meet Alex Agin going, we want our rhythm section to sound like yours. Right. But that was like Sly and Robbie. You know, we were stupid, yeah. really. <laughs> Naivety is a great... It's good to be stupid, because what am I saying? They're, that's probably one of the best rhythm sections in the world, Sly Dunbar and Robbie Shakespeare. Yeah. But, you know, we just kept at it, yeah. Yeah. So, no, it was to say that our music was good enough to have a, a, a kind of very polished, slick approach yeah it wasn't just for all those schmaltzy older guys yeah we were competing on that level yeah, yeah. I, I was also wondering if and was... also it was an artistic statement for us we didn't care we wanted to be sort of as anti-rock and roll as possible we weren't really but that's what we thought you know we, we were like no there's not going to be any leather trousers in this band yeah. or uh, no guitar solos <laughs> sorry that's the 70s we're i mean and, and i loved public image and the pop group and bless them and just some incredibly, you know, postmodern records. But we were a postmodern band. We were taking our influences from everything from Rogers and Hammerstein to Holland Dozier Holland. You know, we were, it was a grab bag. Bowie had taught us that. You know, he, he took bits from everything, didn't he? To make yeah. it all these, those incredible records he made. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. But yeah, it was also a bit of a reaction against uh, Clock DVA and Cabaret Voltaire and the Human League, our, our circle of bands in Sheffield. No, we were we were different again. You know, we were doing we were more Vegas than anything else. Yeah. So yeah, that it was it was a that was the sort of gist of it. It was a bit of a caper to pull off, but yeah, yeah. I'd yeah. seen like I loved searching for the Young Soul Rebels. Dex is he's not Kevin isn't um, signed to Atlantic Records or. I don't know, all those great soul labels, but he kind of took that world and made it his own. Yeah, that was a, that was a great feat. So, yeah, I'm yeah. talking about music from way back. So. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's good. I I was wondering if... But I'll tell you this, though. Nobody ever comes to you and go, why don't you do this? You know, people. if you have success, the record label will take credit, of course, you know. There's times everything was a challenge, so times much later where we we deliver records and they say no we don't like it we don't think it's right for the market we go well put it out because it's our contracts you know and it would be a hit so it's kind of it's there was nobody saying oh go and buy a tuxedo martin and there's no pop <laughs> star making machinery it's yeah. all homemade so you know when we put out records that weren't successful hands hands in the air i can't blame anybody else but you know ourselves uh, yeah, no, it's, we did it's, it's, really stupid things yeah but we, we did some things that worked out pretty good yeah i, I was i think that's the great thing about the creative process and also it's how, how it's how you talk it but it's how you walk it you have to embody what you are what you you become what your songs are even now all these years on i've kind of inhabited some of those songs that's why it's nice to play with the orchestra you kind of grow into them you know it's a funny thing and I'm sure that's what Elton John's doing on his tour. You know, he's he's kind of doing his farewell tour. He's he's yeah. he's they're his songs. Yeah, yeah. I I was I was wondering if there was something I don't know maybe prevalent in the way that the industry operated at the time that has facilitated 
bands like ABC and, and a lot of your contemporaries to have the kind of longevity and the careers that they've had. Cause you know, the cure are releasing a new record this yeah. year. Fresh mode have just had a yeah. really, you know, critically acclaimed record come out. Uh, you know, Duran Duran are releasing new music. Yeah. There's bands that are still, you know, 40 plus years on, they're still doing it. You know, tears for fears released their first album yeah. last year or whatever in, in, in God knows how long, but they're still kind of doing it. And I wonder if it's as, if it's as feasible or possible given like the way that the industry has evolved since then for, for artists and bands to have that same kind of longevity. I mean, I don't know if there's even really a yeah. question in there. It was more just an observation. I wondered if it's something that you well, have any insight to. We definitely sit within that bracket. Yeah. I put an album out a couple of years back called Lexicon two, but it was like a new album and it did, did very well. Um, they're all my contemporaries, you know, Martin Goy's live on Sutherland Avenue. And yeah, we started at the same time as those bands you mentioned but if you go back there's a lot of uh, artists that came through but that you won't hear of them now these are just the artists that have continued to develop and to, to make new music and brands yeah. they are um but yeah i don't know it's an interesting question because i don't know i don't know what what makes them tick it's yeah. hard because you play your your to your audience but it is great to play new music too definitely yeah yeah. You can do that too. Depends how big your audience is, but also you really have to want to do it. I mean, I look at Springsteen. I like I like it when he writes a new song. It's kind of interesting to see his perspective on it. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know where. I don't think they. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I can't. I don't know why. Yeah. No. I I just wondered whether you know there was potentially. I don't know. Maybe in more recent years whether the industry is set up in a way that allows artists to develop over a longer period with their records and maybe have to kind of make the, the choices that they want to make with their albums but i guess it you know it all depends what area of the when i first started making uh, when i first made the lexicon love there were acts around from the late 70s and they'd had three attempts uh they kind of hit the fourth album and they're successful like say simple minds or something yeah they, they make great records but the human league made two albums before they hit hit with death well with us the mood was changing and you knew that if you didn't really kick it just as it was, it was for tears for fears probably for depeche new order you know you kind of wanted you only had one shot really and then built from that so that's definitely what happened to us yeah we, we yeah. went in Yes, I, I admire the way Duran Duran make a new record and play the hits. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah. it takes a lot of um, it takes a lot of focus to do that. Yeah, do you have you always maintained that kind of focus and drive to keep making new music and to no. keep performing? So it's, it's, a, it's a long time, you know, to be doing that. I wonder if that fluctuates at all. And how you feel? I tell you what is inspiring though: playing shows, you play festivals, or there's sometimes thirty thousand, forty thousand people singing back at you. That definitely inspires you. And about 10 years ago, I thought, I don't know, you know, how much longer do I perform? We played a show at the Albert Hall with the orchestra and I could see in the crowd how much the music meant to people, you know, our audience. It's the same for Depeche, I suppose, and uh, those the other acts you mentioned. Yeah, it kind of, it, they love certain songs in your catalogue, so in the body of work, so it feels good to perform it, yeah. So that definitely inspires you to make new stuff. Yeah, brilliant. And um, what's what's coming up next on the horizon for you? Do you have any plans uh, at the moment for new music or new? Yeah, um, going to go to Pasadena, play a festival there um, in about two or three weeks, and then start playing some festivals in America. Come back, but yeah, 
It'd be nice to make a new record, yeah. Probably not. Um, the live album's sort of summation of what we've, we've been doing now, uh, but it'd be great to kind of, yeah, go off on a different tangent and make something brand new, yeah. Yeah. Well, see, it tends to be a bit of a labour of love, though. I mean, I like, you know, I my Paul Simon, he makes records, you know, that are interesting. It's kind of like that, you know, if you can do that as each decade goes by. There's less and less people of my age group doing it, you know what I mean? Because yeah, time yeah. moves on. But it is a good feeling to do it, yeah. Yeah. If there's somebody out there listening. <laughs> yeah, of course. I will, you know, Martin, thank you so much for, uh, yeah, thanks. for Cheers, the time thanks. to chat. I really, really appreciate it. And um, wish you all the all the success with uh, with the live album as well. And, uh, and once again, thank you for taking some time out of thanks. your day in the lovely spot you're in to, uh, to right. talk to us. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.